Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Now that we have concluded our sermon series on the life of Elijah, we are returning to the church's lectionary. I'm preaching from the lectionary today. Uh, The lectionary refers to selected Bible readings from the Anglican tradition, uh, readings set for every single day of the year. Now, sidebar, we at Grace Anglican preach from the lectionary about two-thirds of the year, but not always, because the total of the Sunday lectionary readings covers only about 20% of the Bible, And I myself have this odd, I know, obscurantist perspective that the remaining 80% of the Bible is also inspired and should occasionally be preached. Uh, And so we do both at Grace. We do series through large swaths of the text, and we also do the lectionary to be in step with our tradition. But I want to begin this particular sermon with a story from the Danish philosopher Kierkegaard. And it's about a crowded theater that hosted a variety show Each part of the show was more fantastic than the last, and the exhibits created louder and louder applause from the audience. But at one point, the manager, looking harried, rushed in and said, I apologize for this interruption, but our theater is on fire. You have to leave, and you have to leave now in an orderly fashion, and we'll all get out safely. But the audience thought that the manager and his uh, brash announcement was part of the act, And so they just sat there and cheered thunderously. The manager, looking confused, shouted all the louder for everyone to leave the building immediately. And again, he was applauded. At last, he could do no more. The fire raced through the whole building. Kierkegaard concluded in this way, Our age will burn in fiery destruction to the applause of cheering spectators. Today's gospel passage is really prep for the season of Advent, a season that occurs before Christmas that looks forward to the second appearing of Jesus Christ. And the parable of the ten virgins is very much like the cry of the manager in Kierkegaard's story. It has a jolting, consequential, sobering quality, one that almost no one is ready for and no one is put at ease by. But Jesus sobers us so that we might face our unavoidable reckoning in the best possible way. And I do say an unavoidable reckoning. It doesn't matter if you like it or not or if we believe in it or not. It's still going to happen. It's an inevitability. And so Jesus is trying to sober us so that we, uh, we are invited and participate in uh, the great wedding supper. So I want to talk today about three elements of this story so that we get to the the core meaning of it. I want to talk about the delay, the oil, and the door. But first, the delay. So we're dealing here with a wedding scene. That is a very common Old Testament literary device to describe 
God's relationship to Israel. You may know that in the Old Testament, God is often described as the groom to Israel, his bride. Similarly, in the New Testament, especially in the book of Revelation, the Bible ends with a wedding, the marriage supper of the Lamb in which uh, Christ, the groom, marries the bride, the church, the new Israel of God. Uh, And so, whenever weddings are being mentioned in prophetic material and often in parables, that's a clue that what's being talked about is the climax of history, the great and final day when all things are brought uh, to their culmination. And so we have a wedding. Well, in Jesus' day, weddings were a massive occasion, even more expensive than in our own day. They often took place over several days. They involved many ceremonies and liturgies and feasts and lots of partying, lots of wine. And because weddings were so event-rich, it was common for festivities to be delayed. After all, First century Mediterranean-esque weddings were not managed by type A German wedding coordinators. There were none available. And so it is no surprise that in verse 5 of our passage, the text says, as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. It was a common occurrence for festivities to be delayed. And notice that all ten virgins, and those would have been the rough equivalent of bridesmaids in that time, All ten virgins, both the dumb ones and the savvy ones, experience two things in common, a delay, and they all fell asleep. Now, delay, the whole concept of delay, is an important theme in some of Jesus' parables. It's also found in the parable of the talents. Do you remember that one where the, the rich man gives to his workers various sums of money? And some of them invest the money and they get a good return, one buries it in the ground. Well, whenever they're investing or burying, the manager goes away for a long time and then comes back to hear about what's occurred with his funds. The same kind of theme regarding delay is found in the parable of the vineyard owner, where the vineyard vineyard owner plants a vineyard, leases it out to tenants, and then goes away for a long time, entrusting it to their management. Well, here we have the same theme, and it's almost as if Jesus was not only hyper-aware of how his life was going to play out, but he wanted to clue us in to a more appropriate understanding of eschatology or doctrine of the end times. Many people in Jesus' day believed that when the Messiah finally showed up, that was it. He showed up on the scene, he fixed everything, the end. What Jesus wants us to know is that the Messiah's appearing really happens in a significant way twice. In his first appearing, he brings redemption through his death and resurrection, and then at the end of history, he returns again, he appears a second time to culminate and finalize that work. In theology, we call that the already and the not yet. The kingdom of God has begun already and not yet in its fullness. And so we today live within this non-apocalyptic delay, a pause between the two appearings of Jesus. And I think delays can be dangerous. I think delays can be dangerous. They can put us to sleep or they can seduce us into thinking that this delay in which we are living will last indefinitely or that Jesus is an alpha without an omega. And our current status 
of just living day after day, week after week, loving or hating our job, moving here, moving there, that those patterns will just carry on world without end. And it's often true that this happens not just to individuals, but to uh, the consciousness of a whole country. Do you remember before the tragic events of 9-11, whenever the terrorist attack occurred, uh, that there was a general, sunny view of American future that almost everyone shared? You know, economically we're thriving, politically we're never thriving, we don't expect much there, Uh, but in terms of the markets, they're going really well. Uh, We're walking on sunshine, and that's going to carry on world without end until that day when things really change, and we learn not only how fragile individuals are, but how fragile nations are. Uh, Delays can be dangerous, and so in the story, everybody experiences the delay, and they all fall asleep, the smart ones and the dumb ones, right? But then there's the oil, the situation with the oil. Again, delays in the wedding schedule were predictable, so everyone, especially uh, women, had to be prepared in case of delays. And preparation didn't sort of meant existential grit, they're just going to manage. No, it meant something quite literal. It meant literal oil so they could literally illuminate the literal evening time. Because when you had a world or or cities with no streetlights, walking in the streets at night was a gamble. You gambled your life when you did it especially if you were defenseless, like a bridesmaid back then. And so we read, and I'd love for you to follow along, in verse 7 about the problem with the oil. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom now, through the years, there's been a lot of ink spilt over, the que- over trying to answer the question, what does the oil represent in this story? Some people have guessed that the oil carried by those virgins is something like the Holy Spirit, because oil is often a symbol within the Old Testament, especially of anointing, right, of princes or priests being anointed and set aside by the Holy Spirit. Oil was sort of an external sign of that. Other people say, no, it's faith, that some had faith and some didn't have as much. Some people say it's grace. Um, I I think that's, all those answers are really complicated because after all, the non-savvy virgins at first have some oil, and then it runs out. So does that mean they have like a little dash of the Holy Spirit, and then they leak him, or they have some grace, and that leaks too? Like, just so you know, God doesn't leak from your system. So I just think that's real. It's dangerous theology, and it's weird. And I also want to make this comment about parables in general. Parables, friends, are not strict allegories. Yes, they have allegorical qualities, but they're not strict allegories. There's not always a one-to-one correspondence between every element of the story and some aspect of theology. It's not always crystal clear. Parables themselves are not crystal clear, and I get that from good authority, namely Jesus himself, who, when his disciples asked him in Matthew 13, why don't you just talk like a normal person? Or why do you use parables? He said, I use them so people won't understand what I'm saying. So there are aspects of a parable that seem a little bit more obscured to us. That's not not to be surprising because it's Jesus' own explanation of his methodology. 
When we try to create one-to-one correspondence between every element of the story and our own ideas about theology, it can be complicated. Augustine tries to do this in his commentary on the parables, and you may know that Augustine, in one of my favorite parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan, about a man who was um, beat up by thugs when he was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, Augustine writes in his commentary, trying to allegorize and understand the allegory. He's like, well, clearly, uh, Jerusalem is a symbol for the sun in the solar system, and clearly, Jericho is the moon. And I'm like, yes, clearly, but not really, right? Not really, because nobody would deduce that except maybe Augustine. But hey, we all have hard days. We all say weird things. What are you going to do? Here's what I would say to you. Given the nature of this parable, I think all we can say about the oil is that the oil represents a general readiness, a general readiness, because this parable from start to finish And the final parables of Jesus' life, in which this parable represents part of that litany, they're all about preparedness for the apocalyptic party. Jesus is facing down the barrel of a gun. He knows the end is nigh. He is getting very serious and stern with his parables, uh, very sobering uh, with his audience about the nature of uh, of the end of time. And he's trying to prepare people for the apocalyptic party. So I think the oil just simply represents general readiness. So that's something about the delay, something about the oil, and now something about the door, a disconcerting message about the door in verse 10. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. So the foolish virgins, the unprepared ones, they went, you know, shopping at Walmart to, uh, for a last-ditch attempt to get what they needed to get, and they experience on their way back not only a shut door, but non-recognition, where the groom himself speaks through the closed door, saying, I do not know you. Uh, Robert Capon, the Episcopal theologian, puts it this way. The dreadful sentence, I never knew you, is simply the truth of their condition. He does not say, I never wanted you. He does not say, I never loved you. He does not say, I never invited you. He only says, I never knew you because you never bothered to know me. The knowing there has an intimate quality to it. There was no bond between us, is what's being expressed. And that lack of a bond is now exemplified by your lack of preparedness for this moment. You never thought ahead because you never cared to think ahead. And they have in front of their faces a closed door. And that is quite sobering because what it means, much to this preacher's chagrin, is that the tomorrows and the next weeks and the next months and the next years eventually run out and opportunities to enter cease. You know, there are two false messages, two false messages that are present within contaminated religion about the door. Two wrong ways of understanding it. First, there's no door big enough for you because you have too much damage You have wasted too many years. 
And now there's not a redemption that is sufficient enough to overcome all of the things that you have done wrong. There's also a second false message, and it's this. The door that is open is never, ever going to shut. It stays open forever because eventually everyone gets in. What we could call universalism. Everybody eventually is drawn in and welcomed in and enters in. And as much as I wish that were true, that's simply not what Scripture teaches. That's why St. Paul is so urgent in his second letter to the church in Corinth where he tells his audience, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation, meaning all we have is now. Your tomorrow is not guaranteed, and at some point it's going to be too late. And the closed door in this parable means that some people never do get home. Not everyone makes it. And that is a very hard word. But it's my job to talk about both the comforting things and the discomforting things that are in Scripture. That just happens to be one of the discomforting things. But Jesus doesn't tell this parable simply to wig us out and make us nervous. He's helping us. He's trying to sober us from our slumber to make sure that we're going to be okay. It's actually kindness that leads him to be this abrupt. So that's something about the delay, something about the oil, and something about the door. Let me now apply it to us right now. You know, we live within an age that expects an endless delay, an endless delay with no cataclysm. You know, but this was true even in the first century. Uh, Second Peter reflects the theological rumor mill of his own current time uh, when people were saying, and he quotes them back to themselves, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since our fathers died, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation until now. Meaning everything was fine, we're still fine, we're always going to be fine, got all the time in the world. Our age is part of that same trajectory. You know, our age dulls out a variety of social and practical sedatives, and the cumulative message of all of them is just go back to sleep. Go back to sleep. Everything's fine. Everything will always be fine. Keep scrolling your Instagram, keep swiping left, check Snapchat, order Domino's, and then regret that you ordered Domino's, buy more lotto tickets, obsess over every presidential election. It's the most important election of our lifetime. Gripe about the police department's parking ticket policies, send creative emoticons, drink a few more acidic coffees from Starbucks and pretend like you like them, text, sext, develop a semi-satisfying hobby, eat a hot pocket. The message is sit back, numb out, and enjoy the variety show that we call life. And like all ten virgins, we all get drowsy and fall asleep to this. Not some, all of us. But Jesus, who is kind enough to be impolite and impolitic, reminds all of his sleepy subjects to remember to keep some oil with us just in case. He tells us that God's mercy is infinite. The problem is that we are not infinite. 
We have a timeline. We expire, and so does our sinful, darkening world all around us. It expires too. And thus, opportunities to know God as Redeemer and to be known by God as Redeemer are not infinite. So how do we stay ready? What is our oil that we must have to make it into the marriage supper of the Lamb? Well, whenever the Bible gives us a shaking, destabilizing message like this, it eventually, and almost always, gives us two instructions that we must heed. Two instructions, two responses to make, and these two responses are always like conjoined twins. They always go together. These are old words. Don't tune them out because they're old. They're good words. They are, namely, repent and believe. Repent and believe. Now, if you've been around this context for a while here at Grace, you know that repentance doesn't simply mean becoming a little less naughty, swearing a little less, putting down cigarettes once in a while. Instead, it means something far deeper. It means admitting that we are damaged to our core, we ourselves, and thus we disavow our self-obsession, self-protection, self-righteousness, self-soothing, and the self-annihilation that we call sin. We turn from that and turn toward the world of Christ and others. Sin is always self-obsessed and self-directed. Repentance is known uh, most fully whenever we turn away from self and face Christ for definition and face all those people that are made in God's image, often people that we have sinned against. Um, so I want you to do something for me right now. I'm asking you to do it. Um, I want you to look to your left and right quickly. Look into eyeballs. I want you to look at eyeballs. I know it's awkward. You might not know these people. I do not care. Look into eyeballs. Look into the eyeballs of somebody else. Now here's what I'm saying to you about that. You don't have forever to love these people. You do not have forever to fix some of these relationships that are broken in this room. You don't have forever to pay attention to your kids and put down the damnable iPhone. You don't have forever to write that letter and say you're sorry. And repentance means recognizing that you do not have forever and that this time is all you've got. But that also means you have a little time to turn toward Christ and those made in his image with sorrow over your sin and the desire to get it right this time. So repent, but also believe. Our Jesus is like the raving, shouting theater manager who interrupts the variety show in order to shout about the imminent danger at first, he seems rude and abrasive, but eventually, as we smell the smoke and feel the slowly heating floor, we begin to think, you know, the manager might be on to something. But Jesus does more than simply shout and warn. He's the manager that runs into the audience, starts grabbing our wrists, and drags us from the building, rescuing dopey, smiling patrons until he himself, after throwing us all out, burns up within the building instead of us. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that for the believer, the fiery apocalypse has already passed. It consumed Christ on the cross, and your sin was burned to death there along with him. So, when I ask you to repent and believe, I am asking you 
to turn toward that man and believe in that man. That is some oil for your lamps, and that is my urge for you today. And please don't wait another day. Tomorrow is not a thing. It isn't even real yet. All we have is the now. So place your clumsy repentance and fledgling faith into the hands of the only one who's never, ever going to let you down. He'd rather die than do that. And if you've never been baptized, by the way, as a sign of that faith and repentance, and you'd like to, even tonight, we will do it, and I am dead serious. We will go get that cow-washing tub that we purchased downstairs, fill it with water, and dunk you tonight in front of witnesses. We will baptize you tonight. Just let me know, let one of the ministers know, and we'll do it, because there is no time like the present. Friends, we will never believe perfectly nor repent perfectly, but that's not the point. We repent towards and believe in a perfect Christ, and He, the interrupting manager of heaven and earth, is our enduring hope. Christ's call within this passage is an urgent one, but the door is still wide open for you, and the party awaits your presence. Amen. Free at last, they took your life, they could not take your